chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but feel the overwhelming sense that what Paul right here is saying and what he's encouraging us with this morning is, you can't do it. And so as I was thinking about it, I was thinking just about this question for us this morning. I wonder if you at all are imperfect like me and have ever faced a task where you just couldn't accomplish it. Maybe the first time you did it, you thought to yourself, you know what? I'm tired. I'll go to sleep. I'll get some rest so that way I'll have energy and focus to do it tomorrow. And day after day, you just can't do it. And so I thought to myself, well, I've heard a few people say, I don't have a green thumb. Any plant that I touch just dies. No matter how hard I try, at gardening, it just doesn't work out for me. I follow everything correctly, and the plants somehow always die. There's a show that Sharice and I like to watch. Let me illustrate it this way. There's a show that we like to watch that is based off of how bad people are at baking. It's the whole show. They get these really terrible bakers to come in and try to bake professional tasting and looking cakes and cupcakes and pies and whatever. You name it, they put these people in this kitchen and say, you have to try to make this professional quality baking whatever. It's without fail that every single episode, it's a massive failure after failure, after failure. No matter how hard these people try, anything they bake turns out terrible. One of the common themes of this, though, is that the reason why these cakes and treats always taste terrible is they're always looking for shortcuts in the recipe. We were, we were watching one where instead of grabbing the sugar, this person was trying to do things so fast and trying to cut as many corners that they accidentally take salt and measure it as if it's sugar. But this is the common theme, is that they're constantly looking for shortcuts and their cakes and treats are constantly turning out bad. They're trying to bend the recipe just a little bit to... Get, take shortcuts. All right, let me come back to that in a little bit. Paul, up to this point, right here at this point, has been doing some major soul care for us. Verses 1 through 
for is soul care for the Roman church. It's to ease their souls and hearts. For those people who are saying, I just don't measure up to the gospel. I just don't measure up to what Christ has done for me. It's for those who have looked at their previous sins and have said to themselves, I'm just unworthy of his love. How could he ever love me? It's for those who are struggling with present sin, as as Paul is saying in the end of Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I ought to do or, or I desire to do. And so this passage is for those who are struggling currently with sin and thinking to themselves, I can't believe I just dropped the ball again. I thought I was over this. And once again, I'm back at the beginning still struggling with something that I shouldn't be. And it's really for those who also are worrying about the future. What if I mess up? Will God leave me and forsake me because of my indwelling sin? This chapter right here, Paul is writing for the encouragement and the building up of the church. For the Roman church and specifically today, this morning, for our church. For you. 2,000 years later, Paul is still encouraging. This is incredible. And so this morning in verses 3 and 4, Paul is going to tell us how. How it is possible for somebody to have no condemnation. He's going to tell this church how you and I have no condemnation for being in Christ. He is going to show us this morning how the spirit of life frees us in Christ from the law of sin and death. And he's going to tell us then what the experiential reality is for us who have experienced no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Essentially, what Paul is going to say is that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law so that you and I, so that Christians throughout the millennia, could walk according to the Spirit. This is the aim of the passage this morning. If, if there's one sentence that we could say is for these two verses, it's this, that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law so that we could walk according to the Spirit. But here's the problem. Is that we could not and we cannot live up to the law of God. This is why we needed Jesus to fulfill it. You know, like the gardener who can't garden, although they try as hard as they can, or the baker, as they bake and they try as hard as they can, we may try to keep the law as hard and as perfect as we can, but our sin causes us to manipulate it. Our sin causes us to manipulate the law. 
And so, because of that, we need somebody else to do the gardening on our behalf. We need somebody else to bake the cake on our behalf because we will put salt in it. We need somebody to obey the law on our behalf. And by Christ doing this, He fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. So, what Paul is telling us is that Jesus has done what we couldn't. This is the fundamental truth of the gospel. That Jesus has done something for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And so we come to the beginning of our verse, or our passage, verse 3, for God has done. And we can't skip over those three words. For God has done. These should be three verses that we memorize over and over as believers in Christ. For God has done. What does this read? Why am I making a big deal about this? Because this doesn't say, right off the bat, Paul isn't saying, God will do. God is a bit busy right now, so he's going to do it at some point. Or when you finally clean up your life, then God will do it for you. This verse starts out with saying, for God has done. For God has done it. And this is important because what Paul is about to say next could be very discouraging for us. For God has done. What is it that God has done? Well, in order to know what God has done, Paul is first going to tell us what we haven't done. And so he says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. Now last week we talked about the law in two ways. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. And we saw last week that what Paul is communicating there is the power. The power of the spirit of life and the power of sin and death. Or the principle. There are realities that flow out of that. But this morning what Paul is communicating is the Mosaic law, the law of God, the law that God had given Moses on Mount Sinai. This right here is a reference back to Romans 7. What is it that the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do? We'll see that in a little while, but before we get there, let's talk about what is the flesh. Is it this thing right here? Probably looks really silly doing that. What is the flesh? As I was studying for this, I, I found a really good sentence just to summarize this. And as Paul, he's going to talk about the flesh quite a bit in this chapter. Try to remember this if you can. The flesh is our bent towards sin. That's what our flesh is. So what does the flesh do? How does the flesh weaken the law? 
So God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. In Romans 7, we see that the law is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. But Paul right here is saying that the law has failed to do something because our flesh has weakened it. So here's, here's another sentence that I, I thought was really good, is that the flesh causes sin to employ the law for its own benefit. The flesh causes sin to employ the law for its own benefit. What, is, what does this mean? What, what do I mean by this? It's, it's like this. We treat the law in our flesh like a child saying, well, but you didn't say I couldn't do that. That's how we treat the law of God. We are a lot like the bakers who are looking for shortcuts and loopholes to try to get the recipe done as quick as possible. This is the age-old tale of the serpent. Did God really say? And then we come with our flesh and we look at the law of God and we say, did God really say? This isn't really hurting anybody, is it? This is the Pharisees finding loopholes to not honor their parents, but instead take advantage of them. It's the man or woman who, who's looking at pornography and they're saying, well, this isn't really hurting anyone. At least I'm not actually committing adultery on my spouse. It's the, the person who is saying, well, it's not really stealing. You know, I've just found ways around the taxing system. It's not really coveting. I'm just really looking to see what I have to do in order to have that. It's not that I'm angry. It's just my personality and I just get really passionate. It's not that I'm unloving towards my neighbor. I just tell the truth like it is. Well, that Facebook post really wasn't supposed to be condescending, but I guess if that's how you read it. And so what we do is we employ the law for our benefits. We find loopholes and shortcuts because our flesh is naturally bent to do that. And if you right now are thinking, because there's a temptation to think, well, I don't do that. Then we don't have a really good grasp or understanding of sin. Because all of us are capable on, in one second to get defensive over our sin and then the next second try to love somebody into it. 
So this is what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. Because the flesh employs the law for our own benefit, for our own selfish gain in this lifetime. But what is it that then God has done? So the law was weakened by the flesh, but God sent His own Son. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is exactly in Philippians what Paul is writing in chapter 2. For he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By being born in the likeness of sinful flesh, he humbled himself by becoming a servant. John tells us in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, he goes on to say, became flesh. What Paul is talking about here is Jesus. He sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So does that mean that Jesus sinned or that Jesus was a sinner? Well, well no, what this means is that <laughs> Jesus looked like you and I. Maybe not as white, a little more Mideastern. or Middle East. It means that he felt like you and me. He got sad. He laughed. He cried. He got angry. He had to take naps. He got sick. He was tempted. Jesus was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And what was his purpose then? It was for sin, to condemn sin. Jesus' purpose in his life was to be condemned by God. He was to be condemned by God in the flesh. Because our flesh weakened the law. We take the holy and righteous and good law and employ it for our benefit and gain, but Jesus comes and instead of employing the law for his gain selflessly lives according to every aspect of the law to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. This is what it means in Ephesians when, when God says, but God being rich in Mercy and great in love, he sends his own son. Because we were enemies, we are rebels against a righteous and holy God, unable to live up to the standard of the law. God tells us, be holy for I am holy. And we come and we spit on his law. But Jesus doesn't. And Jesus' mission 
was to be born in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned. So let me try to just explain it like this. Our sin just doesn't make us not nice people. Our sin makes us wicked and evil in the sight of God. And any good work we do is viewed as filthy rags. But this is what makes Jesus so great. We are told that we can't live up to the law, but Jesus says, I will do it for you. We tell God, I want to be God. I want to be the commander of my ship and the master of my own soul. And God says, that's a terrible idea. So I will send my son to bring you back home. We're hopeless. So Jesus will do everything he can so that we can be set free from the slavery of sin. But in order to do that, somebody had to be punished. Somebody had to face the punishment for Adam's transgression, his breaking of God's commandment of not to take the fruit in the garden. Somebody had to pay the punishment. And so what God does is he sends his own son to take our punishment for us. This is the good news of the gospel. We deserve God's wrath, and yet Jesus took it freely for us. What this passage is teaching us right now is this. Say that you have a massive debt. And somebody comes along and says, I want to absorb all of your debt. I want to take it all from you. I'm going to absorb it and take it. And not only am I going to take your debt, then what I'm going to do is actually give you more money than what your debt owed. So you have a $1 million debt, I am going to absorb that and take it all and then give you $2 million back. This is what Jesus does. He absorbs all of our sin. All of it. All of the sin. So all of that sin that you look back on and you think of, how could I ever forgive myself? How could this person ever forgive me? I really messed this up 10 years ago. That sin was condemned and placed on Jesus' shoulders. He absorbed that sin. What about the current sin that you're dealing with right now? He absorbed all of that sin too, and it was placed on his shoulders, and he was punished for it. What about the future sins of 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, Jesus absorbed all of that sin. It was placed on his shoulders and he was punished for that sin. 
And so when Paul starts Romans 8, verse 1, by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation, we now, as Christians, live in the reality that He took all of our sin. We have no condemnation because He was condemned by taking all of our sin for us. <laughs> this is good news. The sin that separated you from God, Jesus took all of it. There's no going back now. Because it was fulfilled. God did this great and sacrificial act because we couldn't do it. So in verse 4, Paul continues to show us and, and peel back the curtains of what God has done. And what we see in verse 4 is what some people call the great exchange. That the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. By you trusting in Jesus, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. So everything that you couldn't do, Jesus has. And now what God does is he looks at you as if you have completed and perfectly lived according to the law. Because Jesus has taken your sin, Jesus gives you his righteousness. This is what's been done for us. This is what's been done for you who are in Christ Jesus. And if you aren't in Christ Jesus, then I would just like to ask you right now, why? What's holding you back and pushing all of your chips in right now and saying, I'm going to follow Christ? If this was going to be my outcome, God's punishment, but Jesus took it from me, why not push all of your chips in on him? Because what Paul then goes on to explain to us is that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul here is doing is he's trying to go back to verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. So this means that when you have Christ's righteousness, desires in your heart change. I no longer want to live like I once lived. I no longer want to live trying to just white-knuckling it and getting through the day, trying to be as legalistic as possible with my obedience towards Christ. It's looking at him and saying, why wouldn't I want to follow Christ? Why wouldn't I want to be obedient and follow him? If he has taken all of my sin from me, why would I not want to walk like him? Why would I wa not want to be set free in Christ Jesus by the Spirit? So here, what I'm going to do is, is I'm just going to explain what it means to walk in the flesh and walk according to the Spirit, and then let's go ahead and conclude, and I will pray for us. <clears throat> Walking according to the flesh is still indulging, still using the law and employing the law 
for your own benefit. So you can't just use Jesus as fire insurance to say, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to follow the law. Theologians call that antinomianism, anti-law. It's not saying, I'm going to ride with Jesus, he's going to be the person I follow, and yet every time you go home, you're still getting angry like you once did. You have no regard for confession or repentance. And then once your sin is finally caught up with you and you're confronted, you apologize because you've been caught, not because you've offended a righteous and holy God. What Paul is saying is it's impossible to be in Christ and yet have no regard for the things of God. Have no regard for godliness and holiness. And so the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit. So what does this mean? This isn't going to be me giving you 20 steps of how to be holy and righteous. Do you want to know how I see us walking according to the Spirit? I, I heard a, a, a pastor recently say this, honesty, confession, and repentance. That's what's being asked of you. That's what we're seeing in these first few verses. That's what we're seeing in Paul's life. I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. That's being honest. That's saying, for the rest of your life, for the rest of my life, we will continue to wrestle and struggle with the flesh. Church, if you don't know this, this past week I have failed miserably multiple times. I've sinned and transgressed. The flesh has gotten the better of me. So it starts with honesty. You want to walk according to the Spirit? Be honest with yourself. We need to be honest with ourselves, realizing that, no, we're not perfect. There is only one who is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And so then we come and we confess. I am not perfect. I still sin, but I'm going to confess my sin right now to you, God. I'm going to confess my sin to my neighbors. I'm going to get together in a, in a group with a group of people and be honest and transparent and confess. This week I, well, I yelled at my wife again. This week I disciplined my kids because I was angry from work and, and I took it out on them. This week, I looked at pornography again. I can't believe I went back to that evil and horrific beast. It's finding and confessing your sin, and then it's repenting. It's saying, I'm going to turn from my sin at all costs. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why would I continue to walk as if there is? The Spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus 
So why would I walk still as a slave to sin? Church, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. God punished sin in the flesh. He took care of it for you and I so that we could live like we were called to live. So Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh so that we could live holy lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your marvelous grace. For your love and compassion. We thank you, God, for sending Jesus to be punished on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin. He took on our sin to free us from sin. God, would this be the reality in our lives? Would we walk like you created us to walk? Children of God. Your children. Honest children. Children who confess and children who repent. Let this be the anthem here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.